Tracy McMullen is a self-proclaimed maker-thinker. She's a saxophonist, composer, and an associate professor of music at Bowdoin College. This year, after over a decade at Bowdoin, she's also started teaching jazz ensemble, which fits perfectly with Tracy's maker-thinker ethos, because jazz education is the subject of her current research project. In it, she investigates what she calls jazz as a moral practice. When I'm talking about jazz as a moral practice, I'm saying, what if we thought about jazz differently and we could really go back and understand like, the values that weren't brought into the university? Tracy asks, what if jazz at the university included more African-American musicians and composers and more women? Could we use jazz to teach anti-racism and inclusivity? You know, you kind of bring them in with this idea of like, oh, we're going to talk about music and everybody loves music and music is so fun. And then you you find out, oh, I'm going to learn and some of these potentially more challenging, more difficult, more scary types of things. But when you have music as your sort of glue, it really helps to make those discussions possible. Tracy is also having these conversations about race and gender with other musicians and scholars as a fellow at the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. In my conversation with Tracy, we discussed the Grammys, how everyone loves Beyonce, and her idea of jazz community service. Bowden presents Tracy McMullen. Tracy McMullen, welcome to Bowden Presents. Hello, thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. You're a practicing musician, but you're also a musicologist, and that sort of is a, the study of music and using music, among other things, as a, as a lens for societal analysis. And through music, you study concepts like authenticity, the real, and freedom. And when I hear those concepts, I think of the study of philosophy or religion, perhaps not music. So what is it that you feel like you can unearth about these concepts through music that you wouldn't really get at in the same way through some of these other disciplines? Well, so first of all, also just to kind of contextualize that what we do here at Bowdoin. So like my PhD isn't even in musicology or ethnomusicology. It's in something called critical studies, experimental practices. So it's a very interdisciplinary approach involving both being an art maker and somebody who's thinking and being an, an intellectual, like through their art, which can be writing about it. You know, I've written, obviously, I've written a book and I write articles and I'm very uh, traditional in that way as a scholar. But just this idea that throughout, and I focus on the United States, by the way, so I'm going to kind of really focus on that particular history. But if you look at the history of music in the United States, a lot of cultural work is done through music, through sort of the embodiment of passing along a lineage, whether that's a value system. So much of the American popular music is really rooted in African-American music. And if you keep taking that back, you start to really understand a value system in music that incorporates ethics and spirituality and morality and collectivity. And that has really influenced American culture in deep ways, even especially in the 19th century and early 20th century when there's just incredible you know, phenomenal racism. We still have racism, but I mean, how it was in the past, music has still been this way to really affect culture in potentially positive ways, but also 
it could be appropriated in this negative ways. So you can see that there's there's so much. It's such an incredible way to bring students into to some of these types of discussions. And the other thing too, in terms of how I think about it, is it's a little bit like you know, you kind of bring them in with this idea of like, oh, we're going to talk about music and everybody loves music and music is so fun. And then you you find out, oh, I'm going to learn and some of these potentially more challenging, more difficult, more scary types of things. But when you have music as your sort of glue, it really helps to make those discussions possible, I think. Yeah, that does seem like something that we can all meet in. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be kind of cross class, race, ethnicity, genders, and we seem to yeah. all get behind Beyonce or yeah. whatever. Yeah, luckily we can, yeah. I mean, there's a time in our history when, you know, there was, speaking of, you said like authenticity, I mean, there's a time much more in the mid 20th century where, you know, Beyonce might have been characterized as commercial and real authentic music would have been rock and roll. And so things have changed a lot um, over the generations where there's more freedom to enjoy a variety of musics and not feel like you're being policed by your race or your gender in terms of what style of music you're supposed to like. You know, I, I guess I can thank some of the youngsters for that. But we still have some of those same types of stories. I mean, all the stereotypes and all, you know, the racism and sexism is all still in there. Speaking of Beyonce, we just had the Grammys this past weekend, which is one of the most well-known and popular music prices, even though it perhaps isn't mm-hmm. the most prestigious ones from the point of view of the musicians and artists always. And Samara Joy, a 23-year-old jazz singer, just won the Grammy in the category of Best New Artist. I've been reading so many articles about how she is this hopeful beam of light and like this this hope that she will bring new and younger listener into the genre and create a new appreciation for jazz among younger people. Do you think we need a Samara Joy for young people to bring them into the fold and the love of jazz? I mean, you see so many young people come through your classrooms. Where I'm feeling most hopeful about jazz today is, is in hip hop, you know, and sort of recognizing, I mean, there's been so many hip hop artists that always sort of recognized this longer tradition of black music that wasn't divvying things up into this is jazz and this is R&B and this is soul and this is funk and this is hip hop, but really recognize it as a continuum. And so when we talk about, if we do, uh, like you know, my, my new research that's looking at jazz education, I mean, that's one of the things that happened with jazz education is it's taking a black music and putting it into literally segregated universities initially so uh, and so it's really taking a black musical practice and and turning it and putting it into a European form with these particular types of values one of the values is a real commitment to maintaining genre boundaries and so then this becomes jazz and it needs to kind of be this for jazz and therefore jazz is not hip-hop whereas I think a lot of young hip-hop artists even going back you know you know from the beginnings really started to you know, put samples of jazz into what they're doing and started to really like kind of break down that sort of binary division. So that's where I've really seen it more recently, like with Kendrick Lamar. And, and it's been really exciting to see young musicians coming up, playing instruments in jazz ways, mixing that with producing and electronics and that type of thing. So, so I guess my first thought then with Samara Joy is, I think she's an incredible musician and I'm really super excited about it. It seems... My first blush thought is it seems a little bit Grammy-like in, in terms of maintaining genre boundaries. 
So let's talk about your current book, which you've already mentioned in your current research. So the working title is Jazz Humanism, Responsibility and Blur in the New Human. Yeah, that's a working title. Yeah. <laughs> and so just to remind me what I'm doing. Right. And so <laughs> you've said that it investigates jazz as a moral practice. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that? So to put it really simply initially, um, if you go back to you know what's considered the beginnings of jazz, which is the beginning of the 20th century, really, but still having roots in black music going back to times of slavery, right? So everything from field haulers and uh, work songs to folk spirituals. So this starts to become, and I'm not going to go through the history of jazz, but I mean, it starts to develop into what's called jazz, particularly in the 1920s, it's called jazz. But it's coming, it's absolutely coming out of a black tradition, right? And so lots of people, you know, are rightly arguing that it's a hybrid tradition. I mean, certainly harmonies are taken from uh, European ideas, lots of instruments are taken from the European tradition, but we wouldn't have swing, and we wouldn't have improvisation, and we wouldn't have blues, and we wouldn't have these blue notes, and we wouldn't have these certain types of timbres if we didn't have this whole tradition of African-American music. So part of that tradition is also different, let's just put it that way, than a Western tradition. So in some ways, it's maybe easier to just even talk about what the Western tradition is. The Western tradition is really prioritizing the single individual that creates something, right? So it's kind of the individual composer, they invent something. And also what, what starts to happen with music is it it's kind of moved out of a context and it becomes, you know, it's in the concert hall or it's even separated in many ways, like art music is going to be separated even from spirituality. So it starts to become very formalized, like, you know, like a modernist sort of idea, right? And this is also happening um, when jazz starts in the in the 1920s, sort of modernism's coming up. So great art is done by the genius person. It's separated from context and culture. So if you look at an African-American tradition, it's really different than that. It's coming out of a collective. There's not a sense of here's the great genius blues inventor. It's like coming out of a folk tradition where songs are repeated, stories are repeated, jokes are repeated, um, harmonies are repeated, and that's just that's how it's done, right? But also within that, because of the particular history of the United States, there's just this idea rather than the sort of competition that starts to be discussed about jazz when you know white white critics are talking about it there's really more of a mentorship model there's actually you know a lot of scholarship and if you go back and read biographies and autobiographies it's not so much of this gladiator style competition as much as there's more mentorship there is an ethics involved there's kind of a community idea so you have that value system but then when jazz is moved into and I'm looking particularly at, at North Texas. So in 1946, that's the first jazz program. It starts in 1946. It's the first place to offer a degree in, in jazz, right? It's a segregated college, right? It's a Jim Crow segregated college. So it's segregated for the first 10 years. And then even after they will let black students in, they don't let the black students play in any performances off campus. So then those students end up leaving. And so I did attend North Texas myself, and I attended... Um, from 1999 to 2003. And when I went there, it was, I mean, it was really completely dominated by white men. All my teachers were white men. The vast majority of all the instrumentalists were white men. So, so it's basically been kind of segregated for a really long time period. So that's what I, when I'm, when I'm talking about jazz as a moral practice, I'm saying, what if we thought about jazz differently and we could really go back and understand, like, 
the values that weren't brought into the university. Some values were brought into the university, right? Like it's this formal practice. It's, a, it's about, you know, the technical details. But the spirituality wasn't brought in. The collectivity wasn't brought in. The history really rooted in an African-American even history, let alone values or sort of understanding what that would be. That's not brought in. It's, it had to be a segregated university, really. And so I'm going on and on. This is what happens when you ask the professor about the book they're writing. But I mean, what I really end up arguing is that kind of intentionally creates a white male lineage because otherwise those men would have to go into spaces where there's black authority and kind of be in more of a position of I want to learn more of sort of a devotion like you have information that I need and I want to learn from you. But that's unfortunately... It's really hard to see that happening on any sort of regular basis in the mid-20th century of the United States in the Jim Crow South, for example, but even in the North. And so when you go into a college and university, you're able to take control of the system and not have to learn from black musicians. And so it really creates this whole other lineage then that, that I feel like is still with us today. So now you are the professor. You are teaching jazz. How are you bringing in those traditions into your classroom today now that you're in a position of perhaps slightly subtly pushing back or shifting that? You know, I I haven't been teaching jazz ensemble, so I've been here for 11 years. And I'm talking a lot about issues of race, which are huge. There's also related to that the issue of gender. So women in jazz it's been very male dominated, right, as well. And so I actually do make that link. So in terms of dealing with women in jazz, I think it's important to have representation. So that's why I'm would like to be in there and like sort of, and I'm also able to share my particular experiences about going through my experiences at North Texas, about all the things that I've learned about jazz history, about talking about what we can think of as jazz as an African-American tradition. I think it's also why it would be great to have African-American representation, whether it's here or anywhere, right? So, I mean, so it's important to have a diverse group of people, um, if you're going to be in university settings, to talk about it, rather than a completely narrow set of, like, all male and all white, that there's just not accountability, right? And there's just not enough sort of pointing out of blind spots. So that... That's why, I mean, that's the fundamental reason why we need diversity is just to to help everybody with their blind spots, right? The other thing is just integrating, like now I'm teaching a seminar in African-American music that's actually really going back and looking at the tradition, you know, the beginnings in the United States of what's happening within the music. I have so many of the students in there that are actually in jazz ensemble. And so we just had a I just came from that class, actually, and they were just talking about, oh, this really makes me understand what you were saying in jazz ensemble before. And I'm thinking, yeah, I think I was, you know, I was definitely trying to say that in the jazz ensemble, but now we're reading an entire book on it. So then it's just, you know, 
just takes time, it takes effort, it takes depth, and you can't just say one or two things. It has to be a much more comprehensive, complex business. <laughs> well, it sounds amazing that you can have that feedback between the practice and the study of it with your student and like mm-hmm. together build that knowledge base through how you're working together. Yeah. I mean, and it goes back to what you were even asking before and even what my PhD is in this critical studies, experimental practices. It's this idea that it's like a maker thinker. It's like it's an embodied you can think about jazz as this embodied lineage that has been passed along and what is passed along. And when I started to, th- to think about North Texas and sort of negative aspects of it, I almost felt like, wow, it's like racism and sexism are passed along as jazz. I mean, that's like the worst case scenario. I mean, but that's kind of what I felt like I was learning in a certain way versus you can do things in a different way where you know, anti-racism and anti-sexism and inclusivity can be taught through jazz in the sort of embodied ethical way, right? And so that's, that's something I'm just very interested in. It's not like here's the scholarship here and the thinking here and blah, 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 and then here's your performance over here. It's like, no, these things actually do go hand in hand. And it's something that if you look at in the history of the United States, if you look at the history of African-American music, that's some of the places where you really see that. I mean, even if you just watch like John Batiste now or listen to some of the things he says, it's like for him, music is such an ethical practice and it's a way of shifting minds and supporting people and having joy as part of the toolbox, but also trying to move in a direction of honesty and and looking at things clearly, right? So it's all together. So I'm going to push you a little bit on this practice part. So could you give me another example of how this is practically taking place in jazz ensemble here at Bowdoin College? You know, as a musician myself and having to continually, you know, work through issues of my own, you know, kind of literally like self-hatred, you know, like just doubting myself, feeling like I'm not good enough. You know, all those negative thoughts that I think a lot of people that try to do something creative will confront. But within all of that is the whole kind of stereotype threat already, like women in jazz, there's already this sort of the sense that you're going to be judged and you can't make any mistakes at all and, and that type of thing. So you have all that going in your mind. But my practice over decades, really, at this point, has been, a, and, and also I should just quickly mention that part of this is I also practice Buddhism, which actually goes hand in hand. There's a lot of jazz musicians who have practiced Buddhism, including some of the people that I'm writing about and work with and stuff. But just always this practice of moving your mind from this concern with recognition, which really, if we're going to talk philosophy, comes out of this notion of the performative that, and if I may, just for half of a second here, I mean, it really, it goes back to Hegel, this idea that the subject can only really exist if it's recognized, recognized by the other. And so you need to be in the situation where the subject is recognized. But what I would argue is rather than this performative, just thinking of something as an improvisative, and that's more your relationship to the other is not of one waiting for recognition from the law, you know, waiting for recognition, but it's generosity, giving to the other. The practice for me is like rather than being concerned about this other in, in my head that I need to perform for, I give to the other and that giving to the other is like the music in that moment, right? So you just bring yourself back. You bring yourself back to your bandmates. You bring yourself back to what's being played right then, what you're playing and respond, listening to them and responding to them. So it is this ethical thing. So what I teach with the students in my ensemble is don't worry about yourself. 
worry about the other people in the band. Listen to them. Try to make them sound better. Be concerned that you can help them sound better. And it just helps you just get out of yourself and so concerned. And you actually do, the music does sound better. You know, you're listening to other people and you're caring about them. And so it's a way to like see it in a collective rather than, okay, I'm the star soloist and I'm in competition with you who's going to solo after me. That's a lot how the vibe that ends up happening at, at a place like North Texas and stuff. And so this is sort of actively focusing on the collective music making. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, one of my best editors. She always said, to be a good storyteller, you have to be a good story listener. Mm-hmm. And sort of that, that receptive part of making something. Yeah, listening. listening. Listening is huge, and we don't talk enough about listening. Like teaching listening getting training and listening yeah another a further sort of elaboration on jazz as ethical community is to you know to think about what's important as a jazz musician so any jazz musician who's out there like a lot of these absolutely the most and the types of people that I end up playing with you know they all went through jazz programs right so it's important to just remember the the history of that and especially if you can kind of contextualize, you know, if you're going to take that history going back to a place like North Texas, that really sent a template of like what is taught as jazz. And then that spreads to Indiana and it spreads all over the, the country. And then so even now when a student goes and learns jazz in a university or college, they can kind of think back and think, hey, what did I learn was jazz? And in lots of ways, it might be just these formal techniques. It might be badassery. You know, it's like very maybe potentially individualistic. A lot of what happened is it was turned into the types of things that can be measured, right? So how high do you play? How accurate do you play? How in tune do you play? How's your vocabulary fitting in and voice leading and all these types of things? So these very sort of measurable ideas you're learning usually. And then you may also be learning issues about you don't talk about race, because that's what, what's usually happening in these programs. That's certainly what happened at North Texas. You don't talk about race because race makes, quote unquote, everybody uncomfortable. But really, if you look at that lineage, it's really clear. It's like, well, no, it's going to make white people uncomfortable. And so that's why that, that context is, is left out. You know, was it ta- teaching you that, you know, men naturally do jazz and women don't do jazz? Was it literally kind of teaching you that through who your instructors were, through who was... Um, picked on ensembles, who was considered important, et cetera, et cetera. And then when you go out after that education and then you go out into the community, you know, what do you owe the community, right? And so so I, I guess I'm just sort of asking like the community of jazz people, you know, wherever they are to, to think through these things and then, you know, think through their education, think through what they learned. And then when they're in the community, maybe they need to re-educate themselves about some things. And then I sort of have been thinking about this idea of like jazz community service, which is just like in this mentorship model, it's not just about, you know, a certain kind of narrow definition of the excellent musician. And so maybe part of that jazz community service or whatever is making sure that you are mentoring other musicians so that you're bringing in other musicians and that you're thinking about intentionally playing with women. And this has come up a lot with other women that I've talked to. You know, I was also at Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. So I had a fellowship there and I was there during the pandemic year. But, you know, there's incredible musicians there. Terry Lynn Carrington, she just won a Grammy for Best Instrumental Album. She has this new standards book out that we're working with here. 
also speaking to that question of like what we what we can do here. And it's new standards, all women. Because if you look through these real books, there's no women composers in there. So she's filling that gap. But when I was there, young, she brings it up and other young women musicians were bringing it up. Like a lot of men will say all these nice things, but they never actually invite women into their bands. Or they'll play with the super famous women, but they won't play with women that are maybe up and coming or, you know, not the complete total badass based on a certain yardstick, etc. So just, I think that if we want to move in this direction, um, just even if we're talking about jazz and jazz community, thinking about who we're inviting into our bands, what types of education we had, how we can um, sort of actively create a community that's more collective, less about the virtuoso individual, more thinking about, you know, how to like a, a larger sort of understanding of what community is rather than just this competitive, you know, here's the top echelon and then blah, blah, blah. Tracy McMullen, thank you so much for coming on Bowden Presents and sharing your yeah. thoughts on jazz and justice with us. Thank you for having me. It was fun.